BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, with triple-digit temperatures scorching much of the drought-plagued West, we're going to sit down with a Central Valley native and journalist who has spent much of his career chronicling the history of farming and water politics in California. That's right. Mark Arax is here, the grandson of Armenian immigrants. He's written four books, most recently, The Dreamt Land, Chasing Water and Dust Across California. He's also an award-winning journalist. We'll get to that in just a second. But first, Scott, we have a date. Oh, where are we going? We're going to work. To the recall. (laughs) Uh, Uh, So the recall date for... September 14th. Yep. Was set just on today, Thursday. Remember when all us geniuses were saying it was going to be in like early November? Well, I mean, we didn't know that all of the The, maneuvering would happen. The greasing of the skids. Yes. So we do know now that this is set for mid-September. Everyone will be getting, you know, a vote-by-mail ballot. So perhaps not the sort of same election day as we had gotten used to in the past. Um, But probably better timing for Newsom than November. I mean, this at least gives him, first of all, he won't have to decide on all those controversial bills before the recall election happens. Good point. Yes. Um, and then obviously fire season, the drought we're about to talk about. I mean, there's multiple reasons that uh, most of us think, you know, his people would like this to happen. Yeah, and I, I think not that long ago, his people uh, were thinking, Dan Newman, we're looking at you. Um, we're thinking that the longer, give it give it more time to sort of let the pandemic and things return to normal. And then Steve Glazer, who I talked to this week, suddenly said, well, do it now. He's in good shape now. Let's do it as soon as possible. And that seemed, message seemed to stick. Uh, and so, you know, Democrats, you could say, put their thumb on several scales in order to expedite that. But, you know, it is odd to have an important election in September. And there's going to have to be a lot of education. And, you know, I don't know how much interest there is. I mean, ultimately, you know, elections are won by the side that has the most motivated and interested voters. So there's some work to do. Yeah, I mean, although it's weird for everyone to have it in September, so I don't know if that's partisan. I think the bigger challenge is is that it's an off-year election period, like whether it was November, October, whatever. People, you know, are in habits of voting at certain times. They certainly hear more when it's a main election. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's up to both sides. I, I think at this point, sort of conventional wisdom is that Newsom is in a pretty strong place. But well, he certainly has enough money. We don't know exactly how much, but it's definitely north of 20 million uh, that he'll be able to spend on is already spending on commercials and get out the votes and all those things. Also today got a price tag. We got a price tag, $276 million, most of that uh, the cost that counties will bear. But unlike some elections and uh, some of these, uh, you know, um, 
in what do they call those expenses that aren't reimbursed mandates oh yeah uh, state yeah. funded mandates yeah or unfunded, or unfunded. but yeah they're, they're going to put it it is in the budget it will be in the budget to cover the costs of counties to keep those county registrars happy um you know i think originally the estimates were more like 400 million you know it is a drop in the bucket i suppose when you're looking at a 263 billion dollar state budget but nonetheless that money could be spent somewhere else can you put a price on democracy scott i don't think I don't you, know can. That you can yeah, um, I don't, no i mean especially look, if you put I, it on your visa card i think ultimately Ultimately, Democrats have tried to use this price tag as a political tool. I don't know how successful it is. I'm not sure anybody's going to decide for or against Newsom based no. on this. And, and to your point, I mean, in the $200 billion plus state budget, it's a drop in the bucket. Um, perhaps more interesting politically is the governor going at it with his own hand-picked Secretary of State, Shirley Weber. Yeah, I filed a lawsuit uh, sort of under the radar. It was, I think, Courthouse News broke that story this week that uh, the governor's attorneys had filed a lawsuit against Shirley Weber, he uh, wants to be designated as a Democrat on the ballot, the top part of the ballot, where it's just the yes-no. Um, he, his lawyers didn't fill out the paperwork properly, and uh, Secretary of State Shirley Weber is following the letter of the law. Uh, I'm not sure it really matters. I think uh, in the end, people know who Gavin Newsom is and uh, probably know he's a Democrat. Yeah, like I have a hard time believing that somebody's going to all the trouble of voting in a recall election and it's like... What Which party, party is, is this guy? And yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure that that'll be the thing that, that breaks the bank. But it is part of what seems like a pattern of his team, at least, being caught sort of flat-footed, right? I mean, they didn't challenge the extension of the signature deadline, which is really what got this on the ballot. They seem to be a little bit... Um, Sloppy. Just, yeah, it's it's a little bizarre. It's a good law firm, you know, but uh, clearly those two things that you just mentioned, uh, I think he'd... Re- I wish he had a do-over. I'm sure he does. Um, but uh, we'll see how that works out. In the end, like I said, I don't think it matters that much. Totally. All right. Just a couple minutes before our break. But uh, we did get two big Supreme Court decisions today, Scott. You've been covering one upholds an Arizona Arizona voting law that Democrats uh, say is going to really hurt minority voters, people of color, people in rural areas. This was not perhaps a huge surprise. We also saw uh, SCOTUS decide that a law requiring that nonprofits. Will you explain it? You explain yeah, it. It's, <laughs> it, it. Yeah. So in California, the attorney general requires that uh, nonprofits, charities disclose with an IRS form, Section B, I believe it's called, uh, who their major donors are. And the AG has always said that they want that information uh, in case they need to investigate for fraud and that sort of thing, kind of an oversight uh, issue. But a couple of nonprofits on the conservative side, one linked to the Koch brothers, sued uh, and said it was an infringement on their First Amendment rights and that it was a, had a chilling effect on donors who may not want their names out there. And by a six to three vote, the usual uh, right. conservative liberal alignment, uh, the court agreed. And in her dissent, Sonia Sotomayor said this puts a big bullseye on the back of all uh, campaign finance laws because this ruling, this decision was broader than some thought it needed to be and could be used to, you know, go after other laws. Yeah, we can leave the the political or the legal sort of analysis of this to others. But I do think when you combine these decisions, I mean, these are big issues for the Democrats, both questions that are within that uh, for the People Act, H.R. 1, that is really being held hostage, you could say, in the Senate um, by the fact that it either needs 60 votes, which Republicans won't give it, or that the filibuster needs to be eliminated to get to 51. Um, I-, I do wonder what sort of pressure, if any, these twin decisions put on someone like Senator Joe Manchin or even Senator Dianne Feinstein, who has been pretty uh, unclear about where she stands on the filibuster. <laughs> yes, not clear that the, this is a big issue for Democrats, perhaps. Yeah, I think, you know, in the end, uh, 
Uh, in the short term, this, neither one of those decisions are going to really have much of an impact on elections here in California. Uh, but down the road, they certainly could. We'll see if it really loosens up uh, Democratic opposition among, uh, like you said, Manchin and Cinema from Arizona to not change the filibuster in any way. But they're kind of screwed uh, unless they get some changes because between all these rules and all these different states, I mean, they're, they're going to have to redouble, maybe triple their efforts to get people out to the polls. You heard it here first. Scott says it. <laughs> all right. We're going to take a short break. When we return, we will be joined by journalist and author Ma- Mark Arux. Uh, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are joined now by Mark Arox. He is a journalist, author, and expert in the water wars that have enveloped California since basically its founding. Mark, welcome to The Breakdown. Nice to be with you guys. Well, we wanted to have you on. You wrote a book about two years ago called The Dreamt Land, Chasing Water and Dust Across California, um, which, as we were discussing before we came on air, is probably even more relevant now than ever. Um, We are... In this drought, uh, never clear in a drought how far into a drought we are, <laughs> but um, it, it stands to be record-breaking, a lot of scientists believe. D- does it feel different now than previous droughts you've lived through, um, or, or is this sort of just the cycles of California? It feels exactly the same. I'm reading these headlines now, and I have all the clips from 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16, and then we had that flood year in 17. It's, it's all the same. If you weren't to look at the dates, you wouldn't know when it, when it was occurring. That's kind of reassuring in a way, because uh, we do have 40 million people now, which is more than we've had <laughs> in past droughts. Uh, and there's climate change, which, of course, makes wildfires worse. So, but you're saying, or are you saying, yeah, this is, we've been through this before. We'll get out of it as we have before. No big deal, in a sense. No, no, I'm not saying that at all. I, I'm saying that the lesson of the last drought was to plant ever more crops, permanent crops, and plant ever more houses, uh, you know, in in the path of wildfire. So no lesson was learned from the last one. So we're just repeating the story with, uh, and and then as you're seeing our own inherent wild swings of weather now hitching on to global climate change, we're seeing havocs we've never seen before. 
Well, I, I was interested reading some of your writing. You know, I think a lot of us, like you said, we sort of live in this uh, just uh, same. What's the word I'm looking for when the same thing happens over and over again and nothing Groundhog changes? Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day. There we go. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, the, the Fresno that you were born in, the Central Valley you live in now, is a very different place than the one the Native Americans lived on, that, that settlers found. Can you talk us back, like, what did the Central Valley look like before a lot of the farming that, that, that you're discussing, you know, came there? So the valley was desert and marsh, depending on how wet and how big the snow melt was. Um, so in in... In my backyard in Fresno, the San Joaquin Valley, you had the most dominant feature on the California map was Tulare Lake. Mm-hmm. There were four distinct tribes of Yokuts who lived along its shores. It was a shallow lake, okay? And the women were able to fish with their feet. Hmm. Uh, the, the, the men were on tule rafts with a hole in the middle, and they would spear these fish. Uh, so prolific was the fish life, that they started uh, farming. The Chinese came and started uh, with their nets farming that lake and sending the terrapin to the best restaurants in San Francisco for turtle soup. (laughs) Wow. So what happens is in the 1880s, as California moves from from, uh, the the domination of Mexico to the domination of Americans, uh, these settlers come, many of them are from the South. A lot of them are Confederates fleeing the slavery South. In fact, one of the first colonies here was the Alabama colony. And they started tapping into the rivers, not 30%, 40% or 50, but 95% of the rivers flow went to farming, okay? And what happened was you started draining Tulare Lake. And then in 1920, the cotton farmers from the plantation south chased out of Georgia and Alabama by the boll weevil. They come west to Tulare Lake and they plant a new cotton plantation. And this is why this place feels like the South. Yeah. They brought their mint juleps <laughs> and, brought, and they brought their black cotton pickers. Yeah. Well, in fact, one of those people was uh, J.G. Boswell, who you write about in another book called The King of California, J.G. Boswell and the Making of a Secret American Empire. Tell us about him and people like him and the impact they've had on the Central Valley. Boswell was a remarkable man. He never told his story. Um he, he, he basically went by the family motto, which was as long as the whale never surfaces, it is never harpooned. <laughs> and so it took myself and um, my colleague, Rick Wartzman, an Armenian and a Jew, to break down, to break down this, this, this Southern patrician man to talk. And he told his story. And it was really this, the, the, the defiance and battles with this lake because no matter how many dams you put on it, no matter how many ditches and canals, nature still found a way past the contrivances of man. And that lake would come back. And it came back in 1996, 97. And that was my idea for the book. As I drove out to Corcoran and I walked up this, this, this levee, this dike, something out of Mississippi or Holland, I got up there and the cotton fields were no more. It was the 
it was the New Jersey shore and white caps were whipping past these telephone poles and nature had found itself again. Pelicans were stabbing at catfish. And I thought, my goodness, this is a book. And so it was really the story of, you know, as I grew up here, dumb to this place, I always wondered why the middle of California felt different from Southern and Northern. It felt more like, like the Midwest or the South. And this was the reason that, 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 this kind of farming, yeah. this kind of plantation. Well, I mean, coming forward till today, how much we I feel like in the political debate over water and farming, you know, we hear a lot. Oh, these are family farmers, small farms. You know, we we put food, we feed America. But you really lay out in your books how much just a few families have really controlled not just the land and the ag, but the water. Can you talk like just put us in context here when we talk about the Central Valley, how much of it is small farms and how much of it is people like the Boswells or the Resnick? who you write about later. So the valley is really three valleys. There's an east side where the water is fairly easy to tap into, the groundwater. You have smaller farms there. The middle around Selma, Fowler, the raisin capital of the world, uh, easy to get the water from the ground because the rivers are flowing right through, smaller. But for the most part, agriculture in the middle of California is large and getting larger. We're having hedge funds and pension funds from Canada, the Canadian Royal Mounties coming here and buying huge swaths of farmland. And, and so the concentration is in fewer and fewer hands, and that means the water is in fewer and fewer hands. And no one uses more water in California than Stuart and R- Linda Resnick, who own the wonderful company. Wonderful palm, pomegranate juice. Yes. And she was quite, actually, I want to save them because what a fascinating couple. But the politics of the Central Valley, uh, Mark, you know, it's a very conservative place, although it's kind of purple in Fresno County, uh, but it's generally conservative. You go down 99 or 5, you're going to see all these signs attacking Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats. But it wasn't always that way. I mean, you wrote not that long ago about President John F. Kennedy standing with Pat Brown to, uh, you know, dynamite the land to create yet another dam uh, and reservoir. Uh, how did it switch? How did, how did the Democrats become the enemy? Well, my own people, we started here, the Armenians is fairly liberal. And as we acquired more, we became um, more conservative. Uh, you know, I think there's a kind of lunatic fringe now that um, has a, a bigger and bigger voice here. And it's on, on, the, on the vanguard of it is, is guys like Devin Nunes. I mean, who, who actually says that the water shortage is not a problem of nature. It's a problem of Marxists and communists. Uh, I mean, so, so, so what do you do with that kind of logic? Um, and, um, you know, this guy every year gets reelected, reelected uh, by ever bigger margins sometimes. Um, so yeah, it's a frustrating place to be. Um, and there's a fight going on between that old Valley and the new Valley, as you're seeing more and more Latinos rise up, uh, get on city councils and boards of soups. Some of that is changing. Yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here, as always, with Scott Schaefer. We're talking to journalist Mark Arox. I keep messing up his name because I thought it was Arox. Everyone says Arox. Arox. Um, his most recent book is The Dreamt Land, Chasing Water and Dust Across California. I mean, Mark, I wonder as, a, as, as somebody who's lived there for so long, whose you know, grandparents immigrated there, as did my great grandparents from Armenia, I should say, um, like, 
Do you think there's a future in the Central Valley, given all the things we've laid out, the drought, the climate change, the fact that really since its beginning, you know, the beginning of California, we have sort of tried to shape the land to what we want, not to what it truly is? Well, we built this magnificent system. The Central Valley Project teamed up with the State Water Project. But, you know, we've gone in my lifetime alone from 13, 14 million Californians to 40 million. The system has so much demands on it that it's cracking, okay? And it's into those cracks that I go in the dreamt land. And so what is the future here? I, I, I think we, ha- we, we can't have it both ways. We can't be the most intensive, uh, uh, you know, productive farm belt in, in, the, in the country, if not the world, and then sprawl out with all this suburbia. <laughs> so something has to give. And that's what we're, that's what we're, like this, that's what all this is about right now. And yet we're not looking at what is, you know, what can California sustain? What kind of growth can, can, can it sustain uh, as we're building more houses in the very path of wildfires? They're burning down as we're building them. It, here in the San Joaquin Valley, we, we've added so many thousands of more acres of almonds and pistachios and mandarins out of that last drought that no wonder, you know, these guys are going dry and no wonder the ground is sinking from all the pumping of the groundwater to make up for the river not flowing the same. Well, and of course, the farmers often complain uh, that they don't get enough water. Uh, They always talk about the Delta smelt and other things that prevent them from getting enough water. But there's some people who say, well, maybe we shouldn't have as much agriculture or at least the kind of agriculture that sucks up a lot of water like alfalfa or rice. Um, almonds. Almonds. I mean, they keep planting what? new almond trees, which are very profitable. I mean, you know, China loves our almonds. But, you know, who who makes that decision? How do you stop that? So here's what's happened to almonds. I've been waiting for an almond glut for 25 years because every crop we've ever planted here, beginning with raisins, has glutted out. And now we're seeing the glut of almonds. They're being pulled out. The price per pound of almonds used to be five bucks in, in the best days. It's about a buck fifty to two now. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing almonds come out and pistachios, which are a little bit more drought tolerant, grow in. Now, the argument about al- almonds, I was hearing Bill Maurer make this 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 argument the other day. Um that, you know, he's having to take shorter showers because of the almonds. But what he doesn't understand is he's in Los Angeles. We're in the San Joaquin Valley. We have our own backyard rivers here. It's that water flow that the, the almond farmers are tapping into. Now, if he wants L.A. to come up and over the mountain and steal this valley's water so they can grow more suburbs across the desert, well, all they're doing is repeating Chinatown. The stealing of the Owens, <laughs> yes. you know, the Owens River. So, yeah. so this is what's so complex. Yes, we're all one state, but each of these regions has their own rivers and their own history of developing these rivers, and that's why it's so complicated to talk about this, uh, you know, as a thousand mile long state. Yeah, for sure. Well, pistachios came up. We mentioned the Resnicks earlier. We do want to talk about them because they are. I mean, reading about them. You know, we talked about the Boswells not wanting to be famous. Like you realize we're all 
very familiar with their products. Palm Wonderful, the pistachio marketing. I'd never heard of them until they wrote a $250,000 check to Gavin Newsom's Fight the Recall right. campaign. I was like, who are these people? And then I saw Come your on, article. Scott. You know, you, you had Okay. <laughs> so I guess to Scott's earlier point, like, why are the Resnicks supporting Newsom when this seems like, you know, they are one of the biggest or the biggest at this point ag owners in the state? Um, and, te- you know, in recent years, that's... B- m- been seen as much more friendly to Republicans than to Democrats. Got to be with the winner. Uh, the Resnicks considered themselves liberals. In fact, Linda, in her youth, ended up copying the Pentagon Papers on her Xerox machine. Okay, <laughs> so so the Resnicks fancy themselves as liberals, and you know, and limousine liberals, we should say. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and listen, they are the new kings and. The pomegranate princess of of, of California. Um, they've got more acres now than the Boswells, and the crops they're growing are more profitable than than the tomatoes and cotton that the Boswells grow. So, um, and you know, they live in Beverly Hills and farm up and over the mountain in Lost Hills. And Lost Hills is a company town, you know. The um, and and so. Um, it took them 30, 35 years, but they started giving back to Lost Hills and some of the other farm worker communities in a way that um, no, no farmers have ever done here. So they're complicated. You know, I, I asked them, well, why are you giving so much? I'm building schools. And they're not just writing the checks. They're actually building the schools and running these programs. And, they, and, I, and I said, is it guilt? And they said, well, you know, there's always a little Jewish guilt involved. But then again... <laughs> If there wasn't guilt, we wouldn't have libraries in, 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 in the United States yeah. or, or, or museums. So complicated people using a lot of water. But the thing that the Dremplan ends with a scene where I'm out in the Empire of Wonderful with Stuart Resnick, and I'm asking him, what was the lesson of this six-year historic drought that ended in 2017? And he said, the lesson is that we can't grow anymore. And yet right out of that drought, he planted more and more acres, and now he's having to buy water from the Boswells. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Full circle. So we have just a few minutes left, Mark. But, you know, yes, they use a lot of water. They also need labor. And a lot of the labor in the Central Valley is migrant workers, many of them, most of them perhaps, undocumented. How do growers think about this issue of immigration? I'm sure they would like to just have their guest worker program back and be done with it. But, you know, when you talk to them, what do you hear? This is fascinating. This is a kind of disconnect, another disconnect. So back in the day when we had 187, Prop 187, which was going to deny immigrants, uh, undocumented, all sorts of services, school, hospitals, things like that. I went into um, a coffee shop in the San Joaquin Valley where a bunch of farmers were at, and they were telling me why they had voted against 187 against the very workers that were picking their crops. Do you mean for it or against it? No, they they voted for 187 against immigration. And it seems so counterintuitive. And one of them, who was the biggest stone fruit grower in the country, a Lebanese American, told me that, listen, labor will always find a way here, always, no matter what how many 187s we put in their way. But the reason I voted for it is because we need to send labor a message. 
we need to let labor always make labor always feel a little iffy iffy about its circumstances hmm. and that iffiness keeps wages down it keeps pressure on so that was a lesson in real politics that i had never heard before well and we just had a supreme court decision right about labor organizing and and preventing organizers from going onto private property it was, came out of a central valley case um i mean what do you see you, you know, we talked earlier that it is more purple than it used to be in the Central Valley. I mean, how do you see this kind of playing out, the, this tension of power and, and the need for work and the need to do work? We're seeing ever more mechanization. That's the reason why you're going to almonds and pistachios. They could be picked by machine. And even now, raisins, they're picking raisins by machine. Mm-hmm. So labor is, they're going to find a way to take care of their labor issue as well. Mark, we're really short on time. Quick question. We're in a drought. I'm sure you're very conscious of water use. How do you and your family save water? Um, Don't tell me you have a swimming pool. No, no, <laughs> no swimming pool back here. I stopped growing a garden. Um, I don't know. We're, 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 we're trying short showers just like everybody else and, um, and praying for rain. Praying for rain. We are all praying for rain. Um, so I, I know that. Well, we're almost we're almost we're almost to the end here. But um, you say that agricultural could fade a bit. Do you see anything to. in the short term? No, it has to. With Sigma, we have to get rid of. We have six million acres in the San Joaquin Valley. We got to get rid of a million to a million and a half to be sustainable. It, it's it's gonna it's has to happen. You think the Resnecks will be part of that? <laughs> they'll they be retired be part, no they'll be happy <laughs> they'll have to be part of it as well um either that or the state's not going to impose sigma the way they said they were and that would be greatly disappointing all right that is mark rx he uh is author of the dream plan which is now available in paperback check it out thank you mark so Thanks, much mark. Rissa Scott, thank you so much. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. We're going to be taking a break next week for the July 4th holiday, but you can find all our archives at kqed.org, and we'll replay one of our favorite shows next week. All right. Our producer is Guy Marzarati, our engineer, Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tovin, lindsay Vinnie Tong, Otis Taylor Jr., and... Erica Aguilar. I'm Scott Schaefer. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Maurice Lago. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. Happy Independence Day. Stay safe out there. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.